Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. All of us have thought and wondered about what all goes on at the races that we run besides the actual running? The answer to that question is more than we can possibly imagine, and it gets bigger with the size of the race. Phil Stewart is the owner of Road Race Management and has been the race director of the Credit Union Cherry Blossom 10-mile run in Washington, D.C., which attracts well over 15,000 finishers annually for over 20 years. In this interview, Phil goes into many key details that are involved in putting on a road race, as well as some of the potential pitfalls. This is a great resource for anyone who's looking to start or become involved in a local road race. Some of the key points of our discussion included what all goes on behind the scenes of a major race event, from the all-important permit process to the wrap-up process that can take months after the actual race date, Cherry Blossom's continual commitment to the elite runners that are invited every year and its desire to be seen as a true sporting event, the financial aspects, including the topic of entry fees as well as sponsors and where they usually come from, and finally, some of the rewarding parts of being a race director and road racing's unique combining of elite and everyday runners. As usual, any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash runninginterviews slash Phil Stewart. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening. Grace Management. Hi, is Mr. Stewart available, please? Uh, this is A. Hi, Mr. Stewart. This is Lucas Felden. We've been emailing for a little while now. Right, uh-huh. How are you doing today? Okay. How's things? Well, all right. <laughs> so do you have any more questions for me before we uh, kind of do this? No, no, I think we can just launch right into it here. Okay, thank you very much. So, uh, Mr. Stewart, thanks so much for being on our show today. Can you uh, start off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you got involved in the sport of running? Uh, well, sure. Uh, I mean, I started off as a collegiate runner and uh, went to a small school in Minnesota, came back to the Washington area, and wanted to continue to run, and so I started just running in road races and um, ran a 219.58 marathon in 1975. It qualified me for the 76 Olympic trials. Uh, so, uh, and then a year or so after that, I was one of the founders of Running Times magazine. I was interested in finding a way to combine my vocation and avocation. So, um, there were three of us who were the founding partners of the magazine, so that started in 1977. Um, and while at the magazine, um, we started a sort of an industry newsletter for race directors called Road Race Management. And when I left the magazine, I swapped my stock for road race ownership of Road Race Management, and that became my own company. I got involved with uh, Cherry Blossom. Uh, just, uh, I ran it several times in the 70s and actually placed fifth once. Um, wow. And then got involved in, uh, just joined the uh, organizing committee, actually did the race announcing for a number of years. And then uh, a friend of mine was a 
race director at that point, so I sort of became his deputy, and then we co-directed it for a year or so, and then I became the director in my own right uh, in 1991. So, um, so you know, today it's the Credit Union Cherry Blossom. We have about 17,000 runners in the 10 mile, another 2,000 runners in the 5K run walk, and about 400 kids in a kids run. So. That's a short synopsis anyway. Certainly taken off from where it started. How did the yeah. Cherry Blossom event start? Well, it started uh, in the first year was 1973. It had 141 finishers in that year, and it was really the brainchild of a fellow named Gar Williams, who at that time was president of the D.C. Roadrunners Club, and he liked the idea of a race tying in with the with the cherry blossom season in Washington. It's always a popular time, uh, and also he thought it would be a good uh, time because it was two weeks before the traditional date was always two weeks before the or two weeks in a day before the Boston Marathon. So it'd be 15 days out, and a lot of local runners wanted to last a last race to te- test their fitness for Boston. So um, so that's how it got started. And it, um, and obviously there was a lot of interest in it right from, right from the get-go. And by oh, the third or fourth year, we were up to the 2,000 runners, 3,000 runners. And then I think really... By the end of the 70s, we were we were having to have a lottery to to get. Well, I'm sorry, it was actually well, yeah, we would have a lottery where people would mail in their envelopes. This is obviously all pre-electronic stuff, and hmm. we had a woman who coordinated the lottery, and she'd spread all the envelopes out on her living room floor and select randomly select the people who got in. So uh, it's obviously come a long way since then, and. And great, basically, through working with the city and making adjustments in the course, we've had courses that could accommodate uh, more and more runners. So, um, so anyway, but the race still is capped, uh, actually. So at this point, we uh, we we went to a first come first serve system for a while, but it was getting so the race was filling up in you know less than an hour, and somehow that didn't seem fair. So I guess about 10 years ago, we went back to the lottery system, uh, but obviously it's all done electronically now. It's a lot easier. I'm sure it is. Does That sounds like a pretty labor-intensive process. So what goes into setting up and directing a race like this that's, that has, you know, tens of thousands of finishers? Well, we have a we have a, a extremely talented organizing committee of about forty people, and there's 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 two state paid staff, myself and a deputy race director, uh, and you know we're doing some aspect of the race virtually all year long, uh, and then we um, work with a about a, as I said about a forty member organizing committee and. You know, all the tasks are divvied up. We have one person in charge of water stops, another person in charge of volunteers, another person who does our elite athletes, et cetera. And, uh, you know, so we just, uh, I mean, there's tremendous volunteer support for the race. Then uh, we have about 2,000 volunteers who report to one or the other of our 40 committee heads. So it's a, it's a big operation on that side. And a lot of the volunteers, I mean, they, they seem to enjoy working on the event. Many of them have been on the committee for about 
10, 15, 20 years or so. So uh, they, they like to be part of it. And so you said you were saying stuff, uh, stuff is going on with the race kind of all year. Like, just how far in advance do you have to start, like, permits and, and all that kind of process with the city and with everybody else? Uh, we really we really start that in the fall, so we'll, we'll probably have our first uh, the races traditionally the the first Sunday in April. Although this year it'll be the second Sunday because Easter falls on the first Sunday. But we'll have our initial meeting with the permitting office probably in in October. Uh, I think one thing that people a lot of people don't realize is how long it takes to sort of put the race away, so to speak, because uh, obviously once the race is over, there's a, just a, a lot of things that need to be that, that need to be addressed. And they're probably the less glamorous things. So in, in some ways that, well, it takes me almost two months to get everything wrapped up from the previous year's race. So that really, so, you know, really the 2014 race wasn't wrapped up till you know in the middle of June and you know now we're starting to prepare budgets and and talk to sponsors uh, about 2015 and then we have the lottery and well we have a fall kickoff in November which is where we unveil the t-shirt design for the following year and then the lottery takes place uh, about takes place during December and then you know then after you get past the holidays, you're into just making all the arrangements. Uh, you know, we have one of the traditions of the of the race is that we have a a strong elite athlete field. We have, uh, uh, and actually, last year we served as the USA Track and Field National Ten Mile Championships for both ten for both men and women. So we did that in addition to our international field so so we were we were given out upwards of seventy thousand dollars in in prize money uh at the at the event and so so the elite i mean ever since day one um we've we've thought that the elite competition has been an important ingredient and and the feedback that we get is that uh, a lot of the runners who are running further back in the pack i mean they find the elite athletes inspiring and you know, even though they may, may feel that that you know they may the elites are running you know twice maybe twice as fast as they are, it's it's still inspirational for them to for them to see them and you know and in some ways it makes it more of a of of a sporting event uh, rather than a social event. Absolutely, I uh, previously interviewed uh, Don Cardong, race director of the uh, Bloomsday Run, which is out near where I live, um, and he also made. A kind of an allusion to all the uh, things that have to happen after the race. What are some of those things that you have to that takes you the next couple of months just to wrap up the race that's already happened? Well, right after the race, there are a lot of people who you know you post you post the results, and we don't declare the results official for a month after the race because I mean they're you know a, a very tiny percentage and I think a lot of the stuff that's happening after the race again is happening to a tiny tiny percent of the of the people but you know there'll be a tiny percent of the people whose timing chips might not work and so you know they go to look at the results and they're not there or their time isn't what they think they it should be and so they contact you and and uh, and you know you have to review those and uh, there's the I mean the distribution of the of the 
of the prize money and, the, and particularly the, the payments for the foreign athletes, there's a lot of uh, IRS regulations that you have to do. And one thing that this race does, and, is, and Don Cardong may have touched on this, is that uh, we are part of something called the Pro Circuit, which is a, a series of five uh, really long time road races at uh, less than the marathon distance, and, and we have a circuit, and we put up a we we put up a circuit purse um, for somebody who wins. Somebody can win. Well, the the winners of any of the four races leading up to the championship are then eligible to compete for the circuit purse. And so, if you've won one of the four previous races and win the circuit championship, then you get a bonus. But one of the other things that the pro circuit races are all committed to is uh, is drug testing at the events. Uh, and this is really, I think our impetus for doing this was feedback that we got from our elite competitors who were saying, you know, we want to make sure that the playing field is leveled and that we, you know, that uh, it's fair competition out there. So. So the five pro circuit races, which include the world's best 10K and at Credit Union Cherry Blossom, the Lilac Bloomsday, uh, Peachtree Road Race, and the Boilermaker in Utica, New York, um, we all pay for the drug testing for USADA to come in and, and do the drug testing. We pay for that out of our own pocket. And, and it comes to about a, a $10,000, a year commitment on the part of the events to, to do this drug testing, um, but again, we we, uh, we we heard that that's what the athletes were interested in having done. So we thought we would uh, step up to the plate there. That's something I've definitely heard about the pro racing circuit, and I was going to ask you about that. Actually, you beat me to the punch. Um, you were you've talked a fair amount about the elite side of the race. Um, I personally think it's great that races like Cherry Blossom and Bloomsday and others do make quite such a commitment to the elite side of the sport, which is kind of a hard thing to to do nowadays because the focus is kind of more on participation and having a good experience and finishing the race than maybe being competitive. How do you uh, kind of keep the race fun for the people who want to just go and just do it to do it and still maintain the elite fields? that you were talking about well you know it's funny I, that, that that some you know there there seems to be sort of a mentality out there that the things that those two things have to be mutually exclusive and you know we we feel that 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 we can do both i mean you know you hear some races who promote themselves as you know people's events or whatever and it's you know it's always kind of frustrating for me because I mean, yes, you know, we bring in elite athletes, and it, we, you know, we think it adds an element of excitement. You know, we've had world records set at the event, and you know, um, but you know, based and you know, we feel that we provide a good, you know, a quality event for runners, whether they're running five minutes a mile, ten minutes a mile, or fourteen minutes a mile, which is our limit as far as our permit goes. Um, but, um, but. You know, and we have you know we have music on the course, and you know all the things that people come to expect these you know these days, and um, you know finishers can get medals and like that. So it's you know again it's you know and it, it's I mean 
for us, it's a it's it's total picture of for runners uh, of all paces. No, I totally agree with you. I, it's always a uh, it's a bit puzzling to me when somebody when people talk about yeah, you know, I don't really care about the elite side of it. Well, you know why not? It makes it a good sporting event, as you were saying. Yeah. No, it gets you know I you know it gets it. I mean you know we think we think that that road racing deserves to be on the sports page and not in the style section. I mean, we'll take it in the style section if we want right. to cover us there, but we want to make sure that we're, you know, that, that that's how we're viewed. And, and, and so anyway, so that's something, you know, the elites are obviously what makes that happen. Yeah, absolutely. So as you were saying, you're the cherry blossoms and running for, you know, 41 years now. Are there any kind of, any of the logistical concerns like permitting and course management and all that, do any of that, does any of that kind of start to take care of itself after a while or not really? You always have to be on top of it um, because uh, rules change, uh, personnel and the permitting office change, change. And so it's, uh, um, and you know, I, I, one of the things certainly that has happened you know, over the last 40 years that a lot of these races have grown is um, is that the municipalities have had a bigger role and they are keenly aware of the fact that there's, you know, that there's uh, potential liability exposure, that the cities incur expenses that are associated with the event. And now we're fortunate in that Washington I mean, Washington D.C. is awash in different police jurisdictions. You've got, I mean, because of the federal government, you've got you know the city police department. The capital, U.S. Capitol, has its own police department. The National Park Service has park police and so forth. Now, our the way our course is is laid out, um, we're entirely on National Park Service land. Um, and so we only have to deal with one permitting authority, which is which is which is good. Um, I mean, it simplifies things. But you know, last year, I mean, I mean, particularly a lot of things changed. Obviously, after the Boston Marathon bombings, and um, last year for the first year, so we were we were a week, we were two weeks before the Boston Marathon bombings in 2013, and. So last year was, or the, the race just this past spring was the first race that we had, uh, the first post-Boston race that we had had. And one of the things that we did was we had what they call a tabletop exercise, which is where they brought us in with all of the different agencies, emergency management agencies, uh, Homeland Security people, FBI, police departments. I mean, we walked into this room and they were, you know, 150 people uh, from various agencies who, you know, potentially had some input into our event. Uh, so that will sort of give you an idea about, um, you know, just about how extensive the municipal and, and you know, security and safety uh, uh, authorities are in the operation of the event. I mean, it's a, it's a far cry from the days when, you know, I think probably in the early days and early 1970s i'm not even sure we had to have a permit to run the race so (laughs) so it's quite different yeah a little bit so in addition to i hadn't even i actually hadn't even hadn't remembered the uh the bombing and the the new security concerns but in addition to that and police jurisdiction and things like that are there any kind of particular issues that your event 
spaces like weather or you know how the course is laid out or anything like that well again one of the things that's kind of that's that's a little bit frustrating is that is that we are limited in how many people we can let into the race by the per by the permitting authorities because um, I think probably if we didn't have a cap that we would probably draw between 25 and 30,000 runners I mean that said one thing that that um, one one reality is that is that we are taking place right in the heart of cherry blossom season which is probably the peak tourist season of the entire year in Washington DC so you know I can understand you know how the in our case the National Park Service says well you know they have to balance the needs of our runners versus you know the family that came from California with their two and five-year-olds and you know they want to be able to you know to see the cherry blossoms um, so, you know, I mean, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who come through Washington uh, during the season. And so, um, so it's a balancing act. But, you know, from looking at it purely from, you know, the race point of view, that, um, you know, that, that, that is what places a limit on the number of runners and it also places a limit on the amount of time. Uh, I mean, we're under intense pressure to get the course reopened, um, uh, race race uh, reopened uh, by 10:30, um, and so so we've set a limit of a 14 minute per mile pace, and we have to put a sweep bus in back, and we and we, we really have to be hard nosed about it. It's if, you know if you're falling behind that pace, you you have to get on the bus, and um, because if people we don't have cooperation on this, then the park park service could just say well we're not going to give you a permit i mean so so you're ever cognizant of the fact that they have you know they could stop your race if they you know or just say we're not going to give you a permit and so it uh it uh, means you want to keep them happy yeah i'm sure that must be a little bit frustrating that uh that that so many things could that if you know if one thing goes wrong then the whole then the whole event could just kind of cease to exist and and you know and and even more so in this era of heightened security. I mean, you know, there can be you know one person who you know leaves an unattended backpack, and you know and, and you know one person out of seventeen thousand, well, you know, pretty decent chance that might happen. And you know, if uh, you know some law enforcement official says it looks suspicious, uh, they can shut us down, and, and uh, so that's. That's that's a very real concern, and and again, as these events get bigger and you know more authorities get involved, you become aware that the the race directors, I mean, that there are more and more areas uh, which are where the control is out of our hands. Yeah. So, what kind of like measures do you take or kind of have in place for the things that you can control? What kind of like continuous I mean, we, you know, we did, you know, we did what, you know, a lot of the races do, which is to, you know, monitor the bag check and everything has to be in clear plastic bags and, um, and, you know, I, you know, they were, they were, you know, police, you know, bomb sniffing dogs around in the area, but, um, um, I mean, outside the, the monitoring of the, of the backpacks and, and other things that people were bringing into the race, um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of 
stuff that's going on that I never even know about. Um, and so, um, but, you know, I also know, you know, I think all the events in the post-Boston era have, you know, one, realized that, um, that uh, you know, a, a, a running event is, you know, a pretty freewheeling out on the city streets and, you know, there's only so much control that you can slap on it. And I think the authorities are trying to balance that, uh, you know, with the experience of the participants. I mean, you don't want it to become so rigid that, uh, that you know, that, that people don't want to participate. It's just too much of a hassle. So, um, but as I said, I'm sure there were, you know, plenty of things that were going on and being monitored that, uh, that I'll probably never know. <laughs> right. Can't be in six places at once. Yeah, or the authorities, you know, they're, you know, they're not, I'm not on the need-to-know list. <laughs> right. Um, so this might not be such a concern now. As you said, the race is, uh, is pretty well capped. But um, in years past, how did you, like, allow for and accommodate growth of the race and the event? Well, we, you know, we, we, we maintained a continual dialogue with the, you know, with the authorities about, you know, what the cap should be and um you know and so you know over the years the cap you know we were at 3500 for a while and then went up to 6000 and you know i think you know we we really made the growth happen in incremental steps uh so um so it's just been you know a continuing dialogue and and gradualism i guess you would call it yeah i'm sure don cardon would have liked that he was you mentioned that uh first time they were going to cap the Bloomsday race at I want to say 500 and they had over I think they had over a thousand and they had over 10,000 probably by the race's third or fourth year so yeah yeah no, he, how much yeah, time was, for gradualism yeah no that's right yeah no that, that that event definitely definitely grew quickly um well but you know I mean we would have grown quickly also if we could have let in everybody who wanted to run but you know the reality was is that the authorities were you know, I guess they were really the ones who were being gradual about it in, in terms of what they would, you know, how many they would let us have in in any given year. And if it worked one year, then they'd say, okay, you know, you can add another thousand or something like that. Right. So has increased participation over the last, let's say, decade or so affected your planning, or is it pretty much just we have to keep this lottery system and everything like that? Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're pretty... You know, the, the the it's funny that the the first year we went from a first come first served again, where it filled up in an hour to a lottery system. Um, you know, there was a lot of grumbling about it, and the, I think the one thing that I learned is that people are going to attack whatever system doesn't get them into the race. So if you yeah. have somebody who you know, had gotten in for 10 years on the first come first serve basis and all of a sudden it's a lottery and they don't get in while well, they're going to say terrible system. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, when we were doing the first come first serve, you know, I got these, you know, these emails from teachers who would say, you know, I've, I've got to teach during that hour when your race is going to be open and they had no chance of getting in and somehow that just didn't seem fair, you know. And so now people have a 10 day, they have 10 days to enter the lottery, so they got plenty of time to do that, and there's no no time pressure on that because everybody in that 10-day period has an equal chance of getting in the race. And you know, and now there's I mean, the lottery is 
is, you know, once you got past that first year, maybe a little bit the second year, but now, um, you know, everybody's completely comfortable with it. And, and we do allow, I mean, because the lottery is so far in advance of the race, we we do allow, we have a month period during February where people who, you know, if they got injured or realize that they're going to try that travel or whatever, uh, that they can transfer their numbers. So we do have a, we do have a, a, a transfer option as well. Why do you think there aren't as many race events lately at kind of distances over 5K and under half marathon? Because they seem to be kind of disappearing well, from the calendar. Well, it's, you know, 5K is sort of your entry-level event. And, you know, you, all of your, I mean, if you have a race that is entirely, not, you know, that is basically a fundraising event, I mean, what you're, what, what you want to cast as broad a net as you can in terms of having the event uh, accessible to as large a number of people, and you're, you know, those events are, you know, they're really looking for walkers, you know, runners, but walkers, and you know, well, I mean, you know, you take a look at the, you know, at the Susan B. Coleman races, and you know, certainly. You know, for many years, many of them were, you know, they had one here in the Washington area that had, you know, 50,000 runners in it or something like that. And, or I shouldn't even say runners, I should say participants, because of that 50,000, there were probably 49,000 of them who were running it. So, um, so you know, if you're looking to maximize dollars for charity, you, you want to have a, 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 a very low bar in terms of uh, competitiveness. So I think that's why you've seen a lot of growth in the 5K area. You know, the half marathons, I think, uh, you know, the word, you know, it's a little bit like the triathlons where they, you know, the, you know, you know, the Ironmans were sort of the gold standard and then they came up with the half Ironman. And so, you know, it, but it still had even though I had the word half in front of Iron Man, it still had the word Iron Man in it, and so, uh, and I think that I think you've seen that happen with the half with the half marathons. I mean, they still have the word marathon in it. So, um, and then obviously, you know, the rock and roll series sort of, uh, you know, pushed pushed that event. And and again, I think their logic for doing it was this was the same thing that it had the link with the marathon, even though it was only half the distance. So. But you know there are a lot of, I mean you know there there are a lot of I mean, a lot of big ten mile races. I mean even in the Washington area we've got you know we've got the Credit Union Cherry Blossom in the spring and then we have the Army ten miler in the fall which has about twenty five thousand finishers and then up the way in Philadelphia you've got the Broad Street Run which has I think this year they had about thirty five thousand runners. There's another ten mile in Annapolis, Maryland which has about five thousand runners in it. So it's a you know, it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's a good it's a good intermediate distance, um, and you know, it takes uh, you know, it takes uh, enough. You know, if you run a 5K or even a 10K, I mean, it takes you know a little bit. It's a little bit longer challenge, uh, but it's you know, but it's still is attainable for a large number of people who you know it won't won't ruin your family life if you're <laughs> trying to get ready for a 10 miler. Yeah, there's a there's an Ironman triathlete event, a full Ironman in our uh, in our area, and the uh, the term Ironman widow is is a very is a very real yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I think I think you know I think that's why people like, and you know I think a lot of people. I mean, the ten miles and you know half marathons are not too you know not not too different not too different in terms of 
you know, being in that middle distance range. It's, I mean, what I find interesting are the, the you know, the, the, the distance that really seems to be affected are, are 20Ks. I keep hearing about more and more 20Ks that are now deciding to become half marathons because of the, you know, because of the popularity of that distance. So I think it's, I think it's affected the universe of 20K events definitely, definitely more than 10-mile events. I I would agree. I am I'm a, a firm believer in that uh, that the buzzword of marathon, and that uh, even if it has the word half in front of it, it still you know right. still inspires a lot of people to do something to, to do the event. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely definitely true. So, um, as a big time race director, what would you what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to set up a race for whatever reason they want to do it, even if it's if, even if it's not for any specific purpose, just to have a race? Well, I think it's gonna I think it's gonna look deceptively easy uh, for starters, and you know I think the first things I would do would be to give them some warnings. Uh, so you know it, it, it's you know I think it's a lot of you know I think it's like a lot of things are you know maybe it's like reading a good book. If you read a good book, it seems. It seems effortless, uh, and if you put on a good race, it seems effortless to the people who are participating. And so they, you know, they probably don't have a clue about what uh, about what goes into it. I think my second warning would be, as I, uh, I think a lot of people think that it's it's an easy way to raise a lot of money for charity. I mean, they see you know some of these figures for you know what some of these big races raise for charity, and they say, gee, you know, if I could raise you know 10% of that they'd be you know a big hero but it just you know again it, it's not that easy to you know to build your base uh, one of the other things that's happened in, in uh, you know for people who are just getting started actually is that the the Roadrunners Club of America has a race director certification course that they do so I would encourage anybody who wants to find out what it's all about to look into uh you know, look into becoming certified as a race director, which will, and they have, they have an online course and a textbook that they do, and, um, you know, that give you, you know, uh, that definitely give you an education about what you're going to encounter. So any specific tips on, you know, registration or prizes or course management or anything like that? I'm sorry, what? Any kind of specific tips on registration or prizes or course management or any other aspect of it? That you can give quickly. Um, yeah. Uh, oh golly. Um, I mean, you know, obviously everybody wants to. You know, I, I think the most basic things that runners want and expect is a, you know, is a certified course, and and you know that's a pretty tedious process. So if you're somebody who's just getting started, you're probably best off, uh, you know, their their course cert people who will certify courses for you know a few hundred dollars, you know, all around the country. So you want to you know you want to. I mean, if nothing else. Uh, you know, I think that's the the first expectation that uh, that you know that runners have. And you know, as far as the registration goes, I mean, uh, I mean virtually every event of any size now is has gone with an online online registration provider of you know, and there there are a number of them out there. And you know, boy, that really that really streamlines the process. I think one thing that uh, that you that you do want to make sure is uh, smooth is is how there is a 
a point at which when you get close to the race where you need to transfer your data from your online registration provider into your scoring software and that's something you want to make sure that you've tested well in advance to make sure that that is uh, seamless so you're not looking the night before the race all of a sudden there's you know some problem with your data or whatever so uh, I think that's a, I mean, a lot of a lot of this is all about advanced planning but I think that's one particularly critical area okay so just a couple more things because I know you probably got a busy day ahead of you um, probably the biggest question in the sport of running in any in any uh, part of it is uh, the question of, uh, of money so entry fees to your race can't cover every cost how does a race go about finding sponsors for uh, for what it does um, well, it's interesting. I mean, it's just to, to, I mean, the entry fees actually. I mean, in our, I mean, in our budget, uh, entry fees are, are the largest single income item. So, so I mean, you can do a lot with entry fees, and and and, and I think one of the, you know, one of the biggest changes in the sport over the last twenty five or thirty years has been the, you know, I guess the what I would call the inelasticity of, uh, of, of entry fee, you know, of entry fees. I mean, you know, you look now and runners, I mean, your half marathons charging $75, $80, your marathons, you know, charging $115, $125 and up from there. So, so you know, for a lot of, and I think, you know, as those entry fees have, have gotten, have gone up, I mean, that's when all of a sudden the sport became of interest to, you know, for-profit organizations because, you know, when you can only charge $25 for a marathon, then, then you know, then, then the money wasn't there, you know, and you needed to rely more on sponsors and so forth. But when you can charge $125, it's, you know, it's an entirely different, uh, it's an entirely different business model and it, it has, and, you know, some of these for-profits realize that hey, there's you know they, they, they can make a profit at this. So that's um, but again, back to your point about sponsors. I mean, obviously sponsors are are you know are are crucial, and and you know the vast majority of them are uh, you know businesses that are that are um, in the local communities. I mean, you know the days of. You know, the days of, you know, back in the 70s, you had the, you know, the dollars flowing from shoe companies, you know, running shoe companies and so forth into events and, you know, outside your, you know, very largest marathons, uh, you know, you don't see the type, you don't see the amount of industry, running industry dollars flowing into sponsorship as you do, um, you know, again, just other businesses that want to, uh you know, want to create goodwill and, and uh, you know, get their messages out uh, within the within the local communities. So is there, so w- with with attracting, you know, sponsors that aren't necessarily, you know, running industry sponsors, is there any kind of concern about a race, you know, getting too corporate branded? This is a question from one of our, uh, one of our listeners. Or does that um, not really come up much? Yeah, I, I, I mean, in our case, I mean, we're a, we're a special case in that because we are on National Park Service land, we have very, very tight regulations 
imposed on us by the National Park Service in terms of our signage and corporate visibility. And those rules were really tightened. There was, I don't know, probably 10 years or so ago, the the NFL did a big, you know, kickoff of the for the football season on the mall, and they had, you know, they had a big stage, and they had, you know, Britney Spears up there taking off most of her clothes with hmm. Capitol in the backdrop, and, and uh, the members of Congress were outraged by this, and of course they went and yelled at the Park Service, and of course the NFL just skipped out of town. They didn't care. They'd done what they wanted, and they'd go do it somewhere else the following year, but. You know, the legacy of that for us was a, a dramatic tightening of uh, of the regulations on on commercial, you know, commercialization and sponsor visibility and so forth. So it's, um, but but uh, you know, even if that weren't the case, um, I, I think runners, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think as long as the sponsors don't impede in the race in any way I, I think there's a fair amount of tolerance for that and, and understanding that uh, that their contributions are are uh, you know vital to the support of the event yeah that's that seems pretty logical and I uh, I guess that makes sense about the government uh, agencies not wanting a crazy amount of, of advertising and, and corporate and the, logos all and, over everything yeah on the National Mall yeah <laughs> so um Tell us about a, uh, a kind of crazy experience you've had as race director, either logistical or personal or anything. Well, I had a, I had a woman. I always get all these, I always get all these people who don't get in by the lottery, and they send me these sob stories about how you know how they didn't get into the race, and you know, well, I give them an exemption or whatever. And there was one woman who sent me a sent me an email and she said, you know, I didn't get into the race and I really want to get into the race because my ex-husband and his new girlfriend are both running the race and I want to beat both of them. <laughs> and so I, I was feeling frisky that day or whatever, so I sent her back an email and I said, okay, I'll let you in. And you let me know after the race if you beat your husband and his new girlfriend. And if you do, I will let you into the race the following year for free. Wow. And she did. Well, that's fun. Anyway, there's, there's, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's stories like that. And you do get a sense that, that um, you know, that, that what you're doing is, you know, creating. I mean, you're, you're bringing, I mean, in being a race director, you're bringing, you know, uh, an important day happiness into the lives of you know however many people are in your race and that that really is a lot of what the satisfaction is I mean you know how, how many jobs are there where you you know you, you can sort of promote people being able to you know live their athletic dreams and and uh, and so it's that's that's a good uh, that's a good thing to feel like you're you're doing yeah and also you know as you and other people have said in this interview series, um, kind of one of the only sports where somebody who's running 14 minutes a mile can say they participated in the same event, not just the same sport, but the same actual day right. of event as you know somebody who's running you know 440 Four. miles for the same. Yeah, for the same no, sport. that's right. Yeah, no, you can't. No, you can't. You're not gonna play in the 
you know, in the stadium with your pro football team or whatever. I mean, you can watch. But yeah, no, that's that that's one of the great one of the great things about the sport. Yeah, and and as you 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 know, you alluded to it a little earlier. Um, also, how many people can say that they've run in a U.S. Championship road race? You know, mm-hmm. plenty. But how many people can say they've you know participated in a U.S. Championship? You know, let's say in golf or something like that. Right. It right. just doesn't yeah. happen much outside of running. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great thing about the sport. Well, Mr. Stewart, thank you very much for your time. Uh, that's about all I got for you today. Uh, okay. Unless there's anything else you want to mention to our listeners? Yeah, I think you've, think you've done, a, done a, a good job of uh, going over some of the challenges and the joys and the questions and like that. So, uh, anyway, I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank right. you very much and have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.